Another exciting edition of School for Startups Radio. The show is so cram packed today, we don't have time for the introduction banter. You know, the beautiful British voice that starts the show every day. We don't have time. We got a cram packed one. Two fantastic guests. Juan JU is with us to talk web design and building a web design business. Amazing conversation about execution strategy, risk, a whole bunch of stuff. And then Drew McWilliams is with us to talk about Ivy Brook Academy. It's a series of Montessori schools that have just done amazingly well. It's a great show. Let's get started. I'm very excited to talk and introduce my first guest today. This is a topic that we haven't talked about in quite a while, and we're going to talk about design. The idea of things just looking good and working well. Please welcome a design expert to the show. His name is Juan Yu. He is living here in the Atlanta area, but has worked all over, especially for Discovery Communications. He was in charge of design there where they created some really cool products, including curiosity.com. He has also worked with Porsche, Edward Jones, the Alzheimer's Association, and lots of others. He has been featured in the important magazines in his space called Com Arts Net Magazine. And he's also won W3 awards for his web design. You can find him at com. Juan, welcome to the show. How are you? Hi, Jim. Uh, glad to be here on, a, on an early Monday morning. Yes. Well, thank you for being with us as we're a week away from Christmas, unbelievably. Yeah. Yeah. Exciting times. Yes. Is design thriving now? Is it going backwards? Overall, how are we doing right now as a world dealing with design? That is a great question. So this is definitely, I would say, a kind of inflection point for the industry. Obviously, one of the bigger changes that's happened over the last year, year or two years, in fact, has been the uh, generative AI really making it to the mainstream. And as a result, we're seeing a lot of um, disruption, frankly, in, in the field. There's been a lot of uh, thinking around what this means for design, partly because you know design means a lot of things, but particularly in the arena of creativity and visual arts, um, you're seeing products like Midjourney, Dolly, be able to go from a simple text prompt to a remarkably beautiful image in, in basically minutes. And so uh, what we're seeing now is that design has, people ha has become much more accessible. Um, there's also a tool called Canva, which you might be familiar with, that's really made uh, creating graphic design much more accessible to the masses. And with generative AI, that's going to make it even easier. So really in the next, I would say five to 10 years, design is going to have to find a different sort of value proposition and offering um, that goes beyond just the aesthetic. And I think uh, design has for, the, for maybe the last five years start to become a little bit more commoditized, particularly with globalization, the, you know, the rising of platforms like Fiverr and Upwork, 
has started to make much more of a fragmented marketplace where in the past there were a lot of larger design agencies and design studios. But I think now you're seeing a lot more independent designers, designers that are maybe a little bit cheaper because they're coming from a third world country. And so design has slowly, slowly been uh, eaten away at. Um, obviously, it's a good time for people who are purchasers of design because now you have much more opportunity, much more access uh, at more affordable prices. But for the design business itself, it's, it's made for um, a little bit more challenging times. And I think there's a little bit of grappling in terms of figuring out where design fits in sort of a new ecosystem. Well, very good analysis. Excellent. Is that, is this, is this good or bad? It sounds like it's really bad for you, the designer, really good for me, the consumer. Uh, what about design overall as a esoteric topic is design getting better? Or are we ending up with better stuff because of the changes you're talking about? Yeah, I, so that so that's uh, I think a double-edged sword. So um, absolutely, it's a great time for design. If you're a consumer and lover of anything that is beautifully designed and crafted, I think we're seeing a lot better web design. Um, I got started in the web back in oh the mid '90s, and uh, if you remember back then, uh, the era of modems, uh, the, the web was a pretty ugly place it was sort of like the wild west there wasn't a lot there and the things that were there was maybe a little shoddy and when you look at websites and the user experience of products today they are very good generally speaking it's polished it has a good experience obviously there's some outliers but generally the quality of products has risen over the last um, 20 years um, so from a user perspective i think that has been a net net positive on the opposite end of the spectrum for people who are offering those services. Obviously we have to figure out where our value prop is. And I think that lies in the strategy. It lies in the thinking, uh, problem solving. I always uh, define design as sort of creative problem solving more so than creating beautiful work in and of themselves. And, and so it, from that perspective, that hasn't changed. We're still going to need really smart designers thinking about the problems that need to be solved and figuring out how to artfully solve them. And so AI isn't going to replace that. Um, now, why I say it's a double-edged sword is on one hand, design has gotten really a lot better, uh, mobile apps, websites, but on the other side, it's become very homogenous. And so you don't see as much creativity. You don't see as much user experience that is maybe unique and differentiated. A lot of things kind of follow patterns. Um, if you look at a website, you know, the logo is on the upper left, the menu is on the top, the, there's a big hero image, there's a headline copy. And so it's become the sort of homogenized design that follows sort of like a pattern that a lot of other designers are replicating or imitating. And so from the standpoint of like pure creativity, it's not as creative as it once was. But I think on the flip side, it's, it's become a lot more user-friendly um, at large. Yeah, you know, I, I like knowing where things are on the web page. Uh, you know, just yeah. so that it, it's functional knowing where the hamburger is going to be and where all the elements are. It's easier that way. We know where to put our eye. But you're right, it is Absolutely. getting tired of that. I am getting tired of that. I'm getting tired of the... 
the Apple design, too, of one white page that seems to scroll forever. Uh, you can go <laughs> down on the Apple homepage for nine years. Uh, right, I'm tired right. of seeing other people copy that. Exactly, exactly. There's the familiarity that makes it really easy. The shopping cart's usually going to be in the upper right. So so you build that muscle memory in terms of where you expect things to be, which is really good because it doesn't make the user have to think about it at all. But on the other side, yes, there's there's patterns that become very popularized. Um, the scrolling, long scrolling homepage, uh, I don't think it's going away, <laughs> unfortunately. It is. Uh, and part of it is it's, it's proven to be effective. I think we live now in an era where there's a lot of data and that data informs uh, what design patterns get uh, promoted. And so when something is shown to be really effective, well, guess what? More and more websites and apps are going to uh, replicate that because they know that there's data showing that it works somewhere else and then they see that it works for them and so they're going to keep it. So, so it kind of leads to sort of this funnel where everybody starts to look very similar to one another. You know, we sometimes play games right now. One of the games I think the world is playing was, was this book written by AI or not? You know, we're seeing AI books. I play the game. Was this done by Canva or not? You know, I, mm. I love Canva, but I have had designers come at me and say, you know, how amazing their stuff is. And I look at it and go, your stuff is really good because every single thing is from Canva. You, you don't have stuff. You have Canva. You know, there is no stuff for you, dude. All you got's Canva. But it is good, yeah. you know. So how do you feel about that? Do you agree with me that you can sort of recognize Canva now? It kind of sticks out. You know what? It used to be easier, but I think there's uh, so many good templates now that it's really hard to tell because of course with Canva, you can use a template like a cookie cutter thing, or you can take something and then you could tweak it just a little bit, customize and move things around so that it becomes a little bit harder to tell. And, and frankly, Canva over the last, I want to say three years has really invested in adding so many more high quality templates. That, you know, as a designer, I, I appreciate it. I look at it. I'm like, it's really good. It's really, I would use it. If, if, if I had no design background, I was starting a business and I, I couldn't afford a designer. I would go to Canva, which is obviously their, their target market. And, um, it's hard, it's harder to hard. It's harder and harder to tell these days. And I remember back in maybe the early aughts, uh, when WordPress came out, there were, um, companies selling WordPress themes. So they're templates for a website. And back then you can tell that, okay, maybe these temp these are templates because they look pretty generic. I, you know, you could kind of look, spot them from a mile away. Now, um, you have companies dedicated to creating high quality WordPress themes, same thing with Shopify themes, same thing with uh, other platforms. And so now you can't really tell unless you've seen that template before and saw it in a store somewhere like the, um, WordPress theme shop, unless you've seen it, you can't really tell that's, that's kind of where we are today. All right. I agree. How the hell do you stay in business? Juan? I mean, <laughs> you know, I, that's a real well, question. Uh, I I'm scared for you. You must be really damn good to have people paying you when, 
you know, in the environment that we just described. How how do you stay in business? Tell me that you're just well, damn good. <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate that. Well, so I, I think there's a couple of things that, that helps me to stay competitive. As I mentioned before, at at its core, design is about solving a business problem creatively. And obviously the expression of that is visual design, but um, there's an analogy that gets made, which I think is really uh, apt, which is that a lot of times people look at design and they kind of think that it's how something looks just from a pure aesthetic standpoint. But really that's like seeing the tip of an iceberg. What is the end result is what people are reacting to, but a lot goes into making those decisions that informs that final thing that surfaces. So <clears throat> I often think about the iceberg. It, there's 90% of it is below the water surface and it's very deep. And so a lot of the work that designers do is about understanding context, understanding who the users are, what their problems are, their pain points, frustrations, understanding the technology, understanding any sort of feasibility considerations, how that interfaces with the computer systems, databases, so on and so forth. And then scaffolding that all the way up to, all right, what the solution actually ends up being, what the user flow is, the interactions, and then the visual design as well. And so the culmination of all of that is what people react to, but so much goes into it. And I think what we're, we're seeing now is that and the business problem and thinking about how to solve it, it's still fundamentally going to be there. Um, the thing that gets, that's become much more easier and accessible is the surface level. And so I think the work of designers over the next decade is going to be increasingly moving away from what I would call the production and the visual design execution and, and anchoring a lot more on the strategy portion, thinking about the underlying problems and how best to solve it. And that will be where the bulk of the con consulting services will be. And one of the ways that I've stayed competitive is to stay small, uh, intentionally so. I think um, when you grow too quickly, especially as a design or any sort of service business, it's, it's a very um, feast and famine kind of dynamic. It's very hard to have sort of even flow. And so when you over higher and you grow too quickly. And in fact, the, the, it becomes a big animal that continues to need to be fed, meaning you need new clients. If you lose a client, you may need to lay off people. And there's this sort of uh, expansion and contraction that happens continuously. I've tried to stay intentionally a lot more um, manageable so that I, I don't have to go through a lot of these sort of uh, overinflationary expansion and then having to lay off people. And so I like to stay very close to the craft and that helps me stay competitive. And of course the years of experience and thinking about the strategy beyond just the design execution has helped me to stay relevant, but you're right <clears throat> for the vast majority of designers who maybe are more executioners, people who focus more on the digital solution at the surface level, they're going to be out of jobs. It's going to be very similar to the automotive industry where you know, people in the unions had jobs forever in manufacturing, and then those jobs were slowly, slowly automated and, and or exported to third, to other countries, right? And so the same is going to happen um, for design. Uh, AI, instead of like international globalized workers, are going to be the ones to take away those jobs. Um, so I think that's sort of unfortunate um, reality that everyone's going to have to grapple with. But the nature of the work 
in many ways will stay the same, but doing the visual aspect of it, I think will certainly um, be a smaller portion of what we do. I want to talk about design from a different level for just a second. I went to architecture school one at Georgia tech and I, I made it through 95% of the program and then had to drop out because my business was doing too well. I actually started a business so that I could go to architecture school. I started a summer business so that I could go to school during the other nine months. And it turned out to be reversed. It turns out if you want to have a successful summer, you have to work your ass off during the winter. And so I had to drop out. But the one thing I learned is that hard things, problems, obstacles are actually sometimes the inspiration for true greatness. And one of my favorite examples is the I.M. Pei. He is an architect most famous for the Louvre Pyramid in Paris, but he also designed a museum in Washington. There was one space left on the mall, and it was a horrible piece of land. It had a weird road going through it at a 17-degree angle, and lots of architects looked at it and said, it's unbuildable. So not a piece of land that anyone's going to want. And IM pay was offered the deal and he came in and made the entire building about the 17 degree angle. The building is inspired by that 17 degree angle, mm. that 17 degree angle made the building work. And you can see it in the entrance and lots of different little places where it, it bears out. Do you agree is is an obstacle the best thing that you can have as a designer? Absolutely. I, I think constraints are wonderful for creative people because it limits where they have to look. So when you have infinite possibility, it, you, you're almost overwhelmed by all the things you can do. So you kind of need some box to help frame and limit where your attention needs to go. And so I 100% agree that having limitations helps to inspire creativity. Yeah, I found that to be very, very true. What is your creative process? Do you have moments where you're just not, ideas are not coming to you? What do you do then? Yeah, so, so that's a wonderful question. I, I think I struggled with that a lot when I was a younger designer. Um, I would spend a lot of time looking at other people's work, trying to get inspiration from other people's work. And that was the worst possible thing I could do. I think, I think the, the solution for me oftentimes these days is to actually step away from the computer, um, find a quiet spot. It could be in a coffee shop. Maybe it's just uh, in, a, in a room without any electronics and just to use paper and pencil. But the one thing that I think helps um, creativity is not to feel like you need this moment of aha, this, this like eureka moment and almost sometimes it happens, but more times than not, it's the process of just putting something on paper, just drawing something out. And as you see it, you can start to react to and reflect on it and say what's working, what's not. And then as you continue to uh, iterate on it, it evolves and you start to get to something that's better and more polished and result in a better design. So, so in the past, I would say like my process was like, I, I need to be inspired. 
And, and now I've come to the realization that inspiration is not something that happens in a small moment. It's something that uh, springs from doing the work, putting in the labor. Um, it's almost like going to a gym. You, you don't see massive muscle gains overnight, but just by going to the gym, you, you see progress and just rather than trying to go, I need to be inspired to create something wonderful. Just start doing the work and slowly your brain is going to subconsciously be um, digesting, uh, synthesizing, and then on a subconscious level, it's probably still working on it even when you sleep. And then finally you start to come, some ideas start to uh, spring forth. So for me, I think it's about doing the work and, and letting inspiration come as you're doing it. I think that's well said. Well said. We all think of Apple when we think of design. Do you agree with that? I find opening an Apple box can almost be a religious experience. I feel like the design jumps out of the box that, you know, wow, this stuff, look how well this is designed or you know, look how little, uh, stuffing they need to protect this disk drive you know it it still works even though gosh there's barely any packaging here it seems to me that apple is the pinnacle is that fair i think so uh, I, I think there's obviously other companies and products that have really high level of design caliber and execution but certainly apple still it remains at the top uh, even among designers as sort of the pinnacle of good design execution, particularly because they do it at such scale. They, they, they have products that go to, <laughs> I don't even know what the number is at this point, over a billion <laughs> customers. And so to be able to uh, execute at that level uh, consistently over the last 20 years, 20 plus years is a remarkable testament to their culture and their ability to, Think about all those big and little details. Uh, when you think about the unboxing experience, that that packaging design, the the materials they use, there was intentionality behind all of it. And I and that's one of the things that I love about uh, something that's beautifully crafted is that they they paid attention to every detail. Um, obviously, there's that saying, "God is in the details," and I couldn't agree more. I think oftentimes people. Um, think that the idea is what's important, but in fact, it's the execution. I think that's the hardest. And you can have two people can have the same idea, but if one person executes it better, they're they're the one that's going to most likely win. And um, I this may be a funny example or a metaphor, but I, I often tell people like, design is kind of like having a baby, you know, it's like making the baby is like having an idea. It's, it's the easiest part. It's actually nurturing this idea, helping it to sort of come to life. Once it's come to life, continuing to um, plant, to, to water it, to uh, nurture it, to help it thrive and succeed. And so there's no part of that, execution process that's easy. Um, and so it's a very painful process. In fact, every time that I ever uh, release a new product uh, for a client or a website, there's a lot of quality assurance that goes into it. There's a lot of communication and back and forth that goes not only between myself and the client, but also their team, their engineering team, trying to work out every little detail to make sure it's done really well. And no part of that process is 
easy. <laughs> it's always the execution that's hard. So to be able to do that at a manufacturing level, to be able to get all of the finishes done, uh, the materials that they choose, uh, that, that Apple has been able to pay attention to every level of detail with, with their suppliers as well as their manufacturers, that is a great testament to the quality of not only their designs, but also their ability to deliver. I agree. Juan, great stuff. I really appreciate your insights and I'm super impressed that you're able to stay alive and in business. It's amazing considering how much your industry is changing. How do we find out more, follow you online, see some of your work, hire you? Yes. So, so people can find me at my company's website, wjystudios.com. Um, you can re reach out to me from there. Fantastic. Thank you so much for being with us and happy holidays to you and your family. Thank you. You too, Jim. And we will be right back. We are back in again. Still so very appreciative that you are with us. I'm very excited to introduce my next guest, even though he is from the other team. You know how when you're in high school, you have the other guys. My next guest, Drew McWilliams, is on the other team. He lives in Weddington, which is the arch enemy of my son's high school. But we're going to like him anyway. We've been having fun and making fun of each other. Drew, though, has had an amazing career, started off in real estate, $100 million in successful transactions. And along the way, he and his wife also started Ivy Brook Academy, which is one of the country's largest uh, daycare learning centers, preschools, K through you know early learning type places. They have almost 100 locations across the United States in a whole bunch of different states and are doing amazingly well have been recognized by that evil magazine which one yeah entrepreneur magazine the people that sued me drew drew entrepreneur magazine yeah. sued me by the way and i'm excited to learn from him he is living in the charlotte area kids the family life and as a steelers fan i can like him for that drew welcome and thank you for your passion for entrepreneurship how you doing Good, Jim. Thanks for having me, and thank you for welcoming somebody from the other team. Well, you know, we've wrestled your school, and I know you're just the villain. So it's it's tough, tough to tough to love winners. <laughs> oh, well, I will call my son and make sure that that's not true. So, uh, amazing career! Congratulations! Really cool. Uh Let's talk about Ivy Brook to get started. So describe the basic model. What do we see when we walk in the door? Yeah, thanks. Ivy Brook Academy is a children's preschool. We cater to children dominantly between the ages of two to six uh, before they go off to kindergarten, first grade, whether they go to public or private school system. So uh, my wife and I created the company, started the company 17 years ago. And uh, we have then turned it into a franchise company where we franchise our, our business plan, our model, and our methods to others to be able to become entrepreneurs in their own town around the country. Uh, as you mentioned, we're up to about 100 locations uh, by the time this, this show airs. But Ivy Brook overall, what, what you're going to see when you walk in the door is a, uh, it is a Montessori-based school. So we have the ability to 
recognize that Montessori schools around the country were really mom and pops here and there. Uh, we've taken something that is of high caliber education and we have put a franchise model on top of it for others to be able to, to duplicate. What does Montessori mean? What is that? Yeah, Montessori is a type of educational approach. So Montessori it comes out of Italy, but it is essentially a different type of learning practice and teaching methodologies. If you uh, ask me too many specifics, you're going to easily stump me because I'm the business and the real estate guy of the, uh, of the company and the marriage, and my wife is the brains of the operation of the curriculum. But we, we infuse three different types of curriculum, Montessori being the one that is known the most. It's really how you teach math. Uh, to the children, and it is really helping them visually uh, be able to understand exactly the learning that's going behind it. Okay, and it's a little more strict than normal schools, aren't they? More structured? Structured is the best way to say it. It is more structured. Uh, All of our schools are more uh, academic-based, not play-based. So even though we're dealing with children that are, are younger from that two to six range, you know, they're, they're walking, they're talking, you know, they're, they're, you know, learning human beings at an extremely rapid rate at that young age. So, uh, it is, everything is academic based, uh, that we're doing at our, at our schools. Right. I love that model. I think that it makes a lot of sense. I think that the more structure a child has, the better that they do. So. I'm a big believer in that. Why did you start number one? Tell us about number one. What was the idea? Why, why a a child business? I used to be drew just so you know, in the summer camp business, I ran 89 summer camps all around the world. And I know what it is to take care of kids. That's really scary. Taking care of Mm -hmm. someone else's kids. Why did you step into that space? Uh, it was an accident. Didn't mean to. I, I would love to say that you know it was intentional, but uh, it was not. My my wife was a first grade teacher. I had a great career in real estate sales at the time, uh, and my wife and I were at the time we were engaged. She came home from work one day and just said she had a calling to work with younger children. And little did I know, you know, not having children at the time, this whole world existed. So we were on a plane uh, on our way to Hawaii for our honeymoon. The uh, uh, stewardess comes around and gives us a you know a cocktail napkin, a beverage of choice, and on the cocktail napkin, I told my wife, you know what what would this school look like? Draw draw your vision, and she drew down what would become uh, the blueprint for our very first school. I probably had a little bit too much moxie in my uh, you know twenties. Came home from our honeymoon, I gave it to an architect, and I said, "Go build my wife her dream. I've got to go back to work and sell more houses." And uh, Little did I know one day that that would come back, those words to haunt me. And now look what I do. I now work, work for my wife or with my wife, whatever you want to joke and jokingly say. And, uh, that's, that's kind of, that's kind of how we got started. So I quit my full-time real estate career once, once she started making more money than me. And I figured out how to wait to, uh, expand the business and grow the business. And when it opened, how many students did you have the first week? First, we were, we were in the black day one. And again, in my 20s, naive, I just thought you opened a business and you're profitable from day one. Little did I know that that's not how the rest of the world exists. But I've done it a couple times now where we've opened the black day one. We had 115 students enrolled 
uh, our first month in business. Wow. How'd you get that many so quickly? There must've been a huge dearth. Yeah. Demand. There was demand, but, but it's also, it's also hustle. It's also hard work. Um, I mean, a lot of, a lot of hours being put into it when, you know, a lot of people would, you know, come home or I would have, we'll call it friends come home and, you know, they would, you know, watch shows. I don't know what, I don't watch shows, never have watched shows. Um, putting in the ability to just work and grind and, and hustle has been, has been the key. But really what we did is identified the market and where to put the first location was wherever the competition had wait lists. Our first goal was, well, let's just go around where uh, the first location uh, can just steal people's wait lists. If we just steal their wait list and we would be successful. And then kind of the rest is history. Now we're the ones on the wait list and competitions trying to steal ours. But, Oh, so what did you, uh, you don't have a copy of their wait list. That's obviously going to That's be right. proprietary of the other guy. So what did you physically do? Did you place ads? Did you stand out with placards in the street and spin them? What did you do? Yeah. Yeah. So again, 17 years ago, a whole lot different world, not no social media of what we're used to today. So how we advertise then compared to how we advertise now is, you know, I kind of laugh and, and, and joke about it, you know, newspaper, uh, advertisements. We would go to uh, the local library. You know, you post post a flyer on the bulletin board, and you rip off a number at the bottom. You know, those old school ways. But also, I remember on I remember New Year's Eve. Um, man, two, two th- going into January first, two thousand and seven. I remember driving around stuffing mailboxes, the legal part of the mailbox, the newspaper parts with flyers about coming soon signs. And I remember fireworks going off. I mean, I remember it was midnight and I was out stuffing mailboxes on new year's Eve while everybody was out partying, trying to, trying to, uh, you know, increase business for, for my wife in this new venture. There was a time I was building my summer camp business and we were in LA the night of the Oscars totally randomly. And we were driving around delivering brochures to all of the private schools in LA and traffic was just a nightmare because of the Oscars and you know, the Oscars in LA started two in the afternoon, you know, the traffic cause it's also, you know, it airs very early there because it's got to be on the prime time on the East coast, you know? So anyway, interesting, Drew, I love the groundwork. I love the hard effort and going out and doing that. That's an amazing story and over a hundred to launch. That's pretty impressive. Where'd you get the money for the build out though? So you may be in the black on a month to month basis, but still you spent a lot of money to build the building and structure. Where'd all that money come from? From your sales? Yeah. From my sales, I I was very blessed that I had a very good real estate career and, uh, I was second highest for new home construction sales on the East coast in 2005 during the boom year. So I took, I took advantage of a, of a, of a boom market and, and realized it at the time and basically just banked everything. We lived very frugally banked everything. Um, you know, what wasn't out buying sports cars, which I easily could have done or buying a beach house but banked it and, and invested, invested in ourselves and, um, never looked back Worked that well. I love it. I love it. Uh, one of the taglines that we use here on the show is want you to, and I haven't said it in a long time, 
maybe a year, take your remote control and place it underneath a rock 15 times and quit watching the Real Housewives and Sports Center. And I love that you say you don't have a show. Uh, we are allowed to watch TV here, but we also try to work, you know, the two screens, laptop in the lap and trashy TV on to, you know, so you sort of feel like you're relaxing. Yeah. All right. Yeah. And then when did you switch to a franchise? Describe that decision. It's really expensive to get all of the legal stuff ready. I know I'll walk through the decision to do that. And did it turbo the growth? Yeah, we didn't set out thinking that the first location would be as successful as it was. Um, opened a second location in the Charlotte metro area. So we had two locations, left my job, and we had two brick-and-mortar locations for 10 years. Never thought about the word franchising, quite honestly. But franchising was for all the fast food companies out there. I didn't realize it was for you know education and everything else that's out there. Um, there's a lot of franchises and franchise opportunities in different sectors and industries we got into franchising really based on our customers demand uh it wasn't on us desiring that or or having a desire to grow the company but as our customers were relocating from charlotte to elsewhere to the floridas the texas everywhere else in the world um they would have to disenroll their children we would move someone up from our wait list and then they would call us once they moved to a new city saying, hey, there's not an Ivy book here. You need to open an Ivy book here. There's such demand, such a market. And we thought that was very flattering for 10 years. Um, we just thought, thought that was a very nice compliment. Still didn't really you know, ring true to us to expand. And then we had our one of our parents, actually was our PTA president, Parent Teacher Association president that we have at each of our schools. She actually moved. Uh, she had two children that graduated from our program, and her third, her youngest, uh, did not have that same you know, education and ability. And she called us every, she called my wife every day for 30 straight days after she moved, trying to get us to move to that town because she saw how her youngest child wasn't receiving the same head start as her older two were and, and uh, wasn't given that ability to have that solid foundation. And that's where we came together and my wife and I really started thinking, hey, there, there's something here. And, and we have two reasons why we, how we ever get into business or different opportunities or even got into franchising. And for my wife, her viewpoint is, hey, these, there's all these children out there across the country that really take our help. They could use what we're doing. And she's the heart. So that's her heart. And my head, in my head, I go, oh my gosh, we've just had 10 years of people doing market research for us and proving that there is a demand out there. And that's the head part. So my wife and I, we make the best decisions in life, both business-wise and for our family, when our head and our heart align. And that's how we got into franchising. Wow. Powerful. Drew, how do, how do you sell houses? What's the secret to selling a house? Uh, honesty and integrity, not trying. People don't want to be sold. Same with franchising. People don't want to be sold anymore and they never have been. So if you treat people like a real human being, be transparent about them, but also present the opportunity that it's going to go away. Something is not, that opportunity is not going to be there forever and it's unique and it's special to them and put it 
and put it in their perspective and choose, then that's a valuable commodity that somebody's going to want to buy. Okay. Well, how can you not be honest in real estate? You know, there's laws about that, you know? And so how uh, are you lying about, not you, but the, the liar agent, are they lying about how many people came through and were interested in the house to make it seem like it's more in demand? You can't lie about the square footage. You can't lie whether that's marble or not. How, how are you more transparent than another guy when there's laws demanding it? Yeah, I don't think it is about, um, you know, lying or telling people incorrect information. I think it's more about just not being salesy and, and, and how I describe salesy is, you know, the last time that you went to go buy a car, did someone jump on you as soon as you, you know, stepped into the parking lot? You know, you can just sense that desperation versus just like you and I right now are having an adult conversation and you can talk about features and benefits about a different product that you have available to someone without having to have that act of desperation. So it's not necessarily a lying thing. It's just a, it's just a communication way I think is different. Just the way you present yourself. hundred percent. Yes. How you present yourself. And do, you know, I feel like maybe it's just because that's what I talk about all the time. I feel like the world knows this now. Do we still have the shysters out there? Buy my car, buy my car. Or do we still see that out there in the world? And I also, I haven't, I got to tell you, I haven't bought a car or a house in decades. So I'm lacking that experience. Is it still yeah, out there? I Bad? You know what? That's that's really good question. I think the last four cars I've purchased have all been sight unseen. I know what I like. I do the research online. You know, I'm a I'm a great customer and very loyal to the one brand that, the, of car that I that I drive and sing with my wife. And I don't even need to go and what meet brand somebody is that? anymore. I I love my GMC SUVs. I'm, okay. I'm a big yep. fan, and I'm I'm four in a row now. So they've They've got a pretty loyal customer out of me now. That's a nice car. I like that. The Yukon is that or something like that? That's that's exactly right. Yeah. 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 I always end up with whatever car is left over. You know? Oh, yeah. (laughs) So, not brand specific. Now we end up with a lot of Toyotas, but you know, they're just, they ended up left over. So, you know, like the mechanic has one for sale. Oh, we'll take it, you know, whatever. So, I end up with the hand me downs. All right. And so you mentioned that in selling real estate, it's very similar to selling the franchise. Uh, franchising is also very prescribed and all sorts of rules and regulations there. You can't make certain claims. When you go out and try to sell a franchise, do you find people that you don't want to sell to because they don't meet the standards? And what are you telling people in terms of, you know, how are you sorting them out for that? How do you find if they're Chick-fil-A worthy or not? Yeah, that's a good question. Really good question. Yeah, we, um, I believe that. I got the money, man. I got it. I got the money. Yeah. Yeah. We decline about a third of the people that apply with us. And I think that is probably the highest denial rates i've i've heard of in the franchise industry typically the franchise industry overall 
I would think that there's a lot of franchises out there that, you know, if they qualify, if they check the box, have the money um, that they would approve them, right? That would make sense. For us, it's a little bit more. Whenever you're dealing with children and people's most precious asset, you know, there is a little bit more that, that we look at in the screening, the personality tests. And, you know, we make people uh, fly in, come meet with us and spend the day with us and, and see if they resonate with, you know, do we think, and this is an opinion-based statement, but also testing personality, are they going to be effective leader in their community whenever it comes to dealing with children? Again, there's only, you only get one shot whenever you're dealing with, with children. We have to make very, you know, informed decisions about who's going to be the right people to, you know, you know, expand and bring on the brand and have that Ivy Brook Academy logo, you know, up in front of the door that they walk through every day. Yes. Especially with kids. Especially with kids. Yeah. So we're pretty, we're pretty strict on the screening process and, and that, that will never change. We sort of existed my summer camp before the world got hyper crazy and our screening was you go to Stanford. Oh, you're hired. And so, Mm. uh, that worked for us, but that was decades ago. How do you you sell franchising? Were you, no, we were not franchised. We were a hundred percent all our own. Yeah. How do you sell to a mom? What's the, the mom formula, our formula, uh, and we didn't know this at first. It took us a couple of years to figure it out. And we'd been doing it for a long time. We were selling self-esteem through our summer camps were non sports. We were academic at Stanford, MIT, Georgetown, UCLA, SMU, Queens college in your, uh, neck of mm-hmm. the woods, their beautiful location, uh, right next to all the nice houses. And, mm-hmm. uh, we were selling self-esteem and happiness. We'll take your kid. That's not on the football team. Um, really smart. Probably doesn't have a best friend yet. And we're going to find them a best friend. And boy, would that sell, you know, you can sell mm-hmm. happiness all day long. Apparently your kids are a little too young for that formula. So what do you, uh, is it the Montessori? I, what resonates the most with mom and dad? Yeah, it's, it's academics is first socialization is second. And, and I'll kind of unpack that a little bit. As far as academics, you know, we have a extremely strong proprietary software that we have developed that, you know, when a parent goes to a, a parent teacher conference and just pick any school USA, you know, K through 12, it doesn't matter. You go to a parent teacher conference, how's little Billy doing? You know, you're going to get feedback and they're mostly it's going to be teachers opinion based statements. Right. Or I'm going to show you report card scores. Our software is, is really our secret sauce where we have the ability at parent teacher conferences to sit down and show parents, you know, bar graphs, pie charts, exactly academically where their child is in developing, whether it's mathematically, whether it's language, whether it's in writing. And, and we track that over their entire career because with children with us, they're, they're staying with us three to four continuous years. So we have that whole database of knowledge to show them their progression of where they've started and where they've gone over their entire career with us, not only year by year, um, but over the whole three or four years. And that's, that's pretty powerful whenever we can show people 
hey, your, your child might be two, two right now, but let me show you, you know, what a resource we have to offer for you of what it's going to look like in three to four years as a sample, you know, portfolio. And how does that come through in marketing? How do you take that? You can't put that on, you know, a print ad, right? You can't. can't take that and put it in a 30 second commercial. I can't now. So there, you know, the sales process for us is it's really twofold. And we're talking about sales process for the end customer. Um, you know, the first process is whenever somebody reaches out to us, whether it's phone, email, whatever, you know, is, is to really sell the tour. That's step one, you know, have people be able to come into the building, set up a time, you know, it's communication skills. That's really it. I mean, having somebody be able to sit down with one of our school directors, principals, you name it, and have a, a genuinely good conversation and being able to show them the secret sauce of, hey, here's the academics that we do. Let's talk about it. Here's a here's an example portfolio, you know, of what your child is going to be able to have created for them along their journey and what we're going to have for them as an end goal in three or four years from now. So if, if you tell folks and show folks, you know, Hey, this is the end goal for, you know, what we're going to be able to accomplish with your child in three to four years. That's very powerful information for you to know, you know, begin with the end in mind uh, is, is a huge statement. Sold me. I would do it. Makes yeah. a lot of sense. Drew, what are some of your family holiday traditions? What are you doing special this time of year? Well, uh, if you have ever seen the movie, you know, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, my wife has just uh, enlisted us last year where we go out to the big field, you know, with the family truckster and we cut down our, our, our tree and bring it back home. Uh, try not to have, you know, my hands completely filled with sap like Clark Griswold did uh, and strap it to the, the hood of the uh, GMC Yukon we just talked about and, you know, drive 35 miles an hour on the way home, you know, with the flashers on because I don't want the tree to fall off and, and uh, you know, install it in, 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 in the family living room. So that, that is our biggest, biggest family tradition that uh, has just been around the corner. That is beautiful. That sounds really nice. <laughs> well, Drew, I hope you have a fantastic holidays. Thank you so much for being with us. Your story is really impressive. It seems like you've done it uh, absolutely perfectly. And thank you for sharing all of your secrets and information. And, uh, oh, one final question. What's the cost to get into a franchise? What are we looking at? Yeah. Turnkey investment for a franchise is about a half a million dollars right now. Okay, and that includes the build out of the building and all of that. Sure does. That includes, you know, startup costs, soft costs, uh, build out of construction, uh, marketing, and uh, furnishing on the inside. And what what kind of ROI? I know I'm not asking. Well, let me ask it this way: What does a well run pre K averages in terms of? ROI or is it a 5% margin or a 50% margin industry? I'm not talking about you, but just the industry mm -hmm. overall. What is the industry average? Industry average in this space for a mature school that is 
uh, fully subscribed, we'll call it, is about a 25% profit margin. Okay. And I would expect you to do better than that. Drew, how do we find out more? Follow online, look at franchise information, all that stuff, please. Yeah, happy to direct anyone. If they want to reach out to me personally, I'm very active on LinkedIn at Drew McWilliams on LinkedIn. Uh, or you can visit us on our company website of ivybrookacademy.com. And what's the market look like in Charlotte in terms of residential real estate? Is demand the problem? There's no demand? Uh, demand is through the roof, and I think we can probably... Oh, I'm sorry, I'm going to talk about housing that, demand. Yeah. There's no houses oh, to buy. Yeah. No houses. Yeah, inventory is low. Demand is high. That's pretty pretty accurate across the, the country. We still haven't caught up from having low inventory levels right now. And what did you do during the pandemic at Ivy Brook? Did you just close Ooh, down yeah. or how did, how did, did you get loans? To, I mean, not loans, but the, the government bailout. How did you do with the pandemic? Yeah, that, that was an interesting one, right? Gone through a financial recession and gone through a pandemic, uh, being a business owner. Those are two things I never thought I would accomplish. Uh, the, the pandemic was an interesting one because we were open in multiple different states at that time. Uh, what we did, I can tell you, at my, my home campus in Charlotte, North Carolina, is we went virtual for three months. Uh, just while everyone was trying to figure everything out. Thankfully, we have a good technology stack that we were able to do that uh, seamlessly. We just had to teach a bunch of uh, teachers how to use this world of Zoom, which is now kind of common sense to everybody. But at the time, it wasn't that overly used. Went virtual for three months. And then after three months, then we gave our customers the ability to pick and choose. They can either elect to come back in person. Uh, we had a lot of safety precautions in place. Oh, or they could elect to continue to do a virtual teaching with us. And we had a, we hired a, a, a virtual teacher uh, just for that kind of academics component. I will tell you, uh, since we were considered essential, that's why we were allowed to have in-person students. And I will tell you, the majority of our customers, I would say, might have a little bit of a rounding error. About 98% of our customers elected to come back in person versus being taught virtually. The one thing I know as a parent is the, my number one thing is I want to get rid of my damn kids. And as a summer camp owner, I know the parents just want to get rid of their kids. And uh, better not stop me from getting rid of my kid because I want to get yeah. rid of my kid. So I love that business. Yeah. yeah. Drew McWilliams, Ivy Brook Academy, thank you so much for being with us. All right. Thank you, Jim. Appreciate it. Thanks for the time. We're out of time, but we're back tomorrow. Be safe, everyone. Take care. Go make a million dollars and happy holidays. Bye now.